I'm not going to be here next week. I'm taking another holiday with Durga, but that's the last one this year. She says, I think so. I can't afford, nobody can be away in November and December, so it has to be the last one. So we are now at number 155. We finished last time, two weeks ago. So, on the subject of Master's clear memory, I remember an episode involving Oliver Rogers, a disciple about 55 years old, well past the age of most of us, who came as a disciple about a year after I did. Rogers, as the Master called him, said to me one day, said to him one day, I heard you many years ago, Master, at Boston Symphony Hall. Something impressed me particular that day in that full auditorium you kept your gaze fixed on me. I remember, answered the master quietly. It, is taken his, it had taken his disciple all these years to come. Rogers added, during all that time I never forgot you. I kept wondering where you were and asking about you. How wonderful it is to have found you at last. That's, I think that's one of the sweetest stories in the whole book, isn't it? Can you imagine? Just, I mean, Master... He said he had that vision when he was uh, in the, in the uh, meditating at the Ranchi, Ranchi school and he saw all the faces and then Swami asked him at the end, have, have all the faces that you've seen, have they all come to you? I'm just waiting for one or two more, he said. And then one or two more came before he passed away. And I mean, and Oliver Rogers, there it was, he saw him. You know, it's, it, must, it lo must look so different to the masters. You know, we just, we sort of, uh, we see, we see physical bodies, but they see vibrations of consciousness. So it must be that people differentiate themselves quite dramatically. Uh, Swamiji made a comment sort of like that at one point about seeing everybody as just egos on a spectrum between delusion and self-realization. So he would recognize people by the energy that they have. So imagine in a whole auditorium, even if there's thousands of people, if there's one person there whose energy really matches yours, if he's your own, if you recognize your brother or your own child, you wouldn't forget him. And I mean, I certainly know from when I've been in front of groups that there'll be people in the room that just completely capture. I mean, sometimes I have to work not to give a whole lecture to like one person because there'll just be one person who's so connected and all the others are sort of there, but the, it's, it's very dramatic, actually. It's not at all um, difficult. I mean, when, when we're a small group like this and we're all in tune with each other, it's not quite so much like that. But in a larger room, even on Sunday sometimes. But certainly when I uh, speak it to audiences that I don't know, there'll just be a couple of people and you actually even end up feeling like the whole evening was just for them. So it doesn't really matter how many were there. There were just a couple of them. That's why I never count the number of people in the class. I mean, there can be three people in the class. I mean, there can be 300, and there's still only three people in the class. That's when Master once, remember when Dr. Lewis said about there were 5,000 at the lecture, and Master said five will sign up for the classes. He must have just stood there and realized that there were only five people really listening to him in that room. So from that point of view, of course, he would speak to Oliver and remember him. He also, I mean, Oliver's uh, uh, karma was, was uh, complicated 
because he saw him all those years ago, remembered him all that time, but didn't come to him until he'd already gone through many things in life. And so, as a consequence, Master must have been waiting for him the whole time. And also it may have been, I mean, one can imagine that Master knew this was his moment, and he had to to give that man as much energy as he could in order to be able to pull him in, that it would hold him all those years so that he wouldn't he wouldn't lose. Yeah, it's you just it's just such a different story than the story we think it is. We we look at it in so caught so physical cause and effect. Yeah. Uh, some of the first times listening to Swami Kriyananda, I had the feeling that he was talking to me and no one else in the room. Exactly. I know. Those are wonderful moments, aren't they? Every and that's the Rasha Lila. All the gopis went out and every gopi had a Krishna. And they all thought they were the only one dancing with Krishna. I love that. That's what those beautiful pictures, yeah. You know, it, for me, it's just so um, reassuring and so fascinating and so deeply um, satisfying that in the uh, underneath the whole movie that we find ourselves in, all the drama, all the different storylines, that underneath all of that, there's just this like unfathomable love that God has for us and in master you know God in the form of master would would be so be able to be so personal so deeply personal with Roger and then with Swami and all of us underneath all this crazy storyline is God just loving us so deeply and so amazingly that uh, it overwhelms uh, for me it takes the place of everything else and becomes the only thing that's really important and worthwhile considering. Yes. I mean, it's nice the older we get to bring it down to such a simple thought. I, 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 I don't mean to dwell on age, but um, it's gotten so much simpler for me lately. Just really that. There's just like, if you can just keep that thread. There's a wonderful story that is in my book about Swamiji about after he was uh, expelled from SRF in 1962, and he went went from uh, Delhi to New York to meet the board of the Daya Mata and Taramata, he left India to do that, and then he was never allowed back into India, and he never went back to SRF, and he never contacted any of the people who he'd been spending all those years with. So he just was there, and then he vaporized. That was it. He was gone. And it was many years before any of them found, heard of him again, and it was ten years before he ever went back. And when he went back, he didn't go back in a public lecture way, so he only saw a few close friends. But then in 2003, he moved back and advertised himself and contacted people. And then there's the story that's told in there of this man who came to him who had been, I think, uh, 12 or maybe less than 12, who'd come with his father to see Swami. And when his father took Kriya, this is 1961 or so, when his father took Kriya, this boy wanted to take Kriya. But Swami said, you're a little young. He said, I'll give it to you later, wait. And then Swami disappeared. But he never took Kriya from anyone else, even though he stayed on the path. He never took the Kriya initiation. And when Swami came back in 2003, he came back to see him like what 40 years later and uh, you know, said I, you told me to wait so I've waited 
He said, I've been waiting for you. That's what the disciple said. And Swami said, I've been waiting for you also. Amazing. Just, it's, literally it's literally true. He just couldn't do it because Swami told him to wait. So he waited. My, my, my. But we should meditate on that a great deal, just as you're saying. Because there's a great deal inside of us. There's a great deal inside of us that... It's, it's the greatest delusion of all. That, that resists accepting um, that power. I, I think it's the... Um, long we feared to face your love. So Swami talks a little bit further on in the readings that are coming up about the power that Master had. And I think part of us, it's like, you know, we live on a certain, we control our lives. And part of what we control is just really how much energy we have to deal with. I remember someone coming to me as they were sort of evolving on the spiritual path and one of the things that happens at Ananda as we work on the spiritual path is we become more energetic. We do the energization exercises, we're called upon to serve. Um, just many, we do Kriya, many things happen to us and we increases the energy flow. And Ananda itself demands that you live at a very high level of energy. That's one of the reasons why some people go to places where you're not, it's not as much as asked of you. Um, but what happens is you can sort of, you can, people set, set a, a way that they can control their world. That they only allow a certain number of things to happen, a certain amount of energy to run through. And when we start, when you start having more satsang and more demands on you, then more energy begins to run through. And often, I remember one woman was talking to me in particular, it was like, you know, she couldn't keep her equilibrium in this and she really wanted to tamp it all down again because it was harder to steer when the machine was going that much faster. I remember a woman who married a very high energy man and she just was, uh, she, didn't, she didn't realize what she was getting into but she had kept herself steady by sort of sinking into a tamasic state a lot and with his, uh, the proximity of his energy prevented her from doing that and she was kind of in a panic about it because she didn't have another way of, of coping. And so on a very um, profound level we're accustomed to operating on a subconscious level a lot of the time. And if we really accept, accept the vibration, even accept the idea um, it has consequences. And we, we have to be ready also to meet those consequences. I remember um, uh, some, I can't remember, now I don't remember the exact context, but I do remember Swami's response. Just people are afraid of the responsibility of loving and of taking responsibility for things. We just don't, don't want to have that. Too much is going to be asked of me. And we're afraid of becoming too advanced on the spiritual path because too much will be asked of me. You know, if I start really loving that many people, what will happen to me? And so that, I mean, all of those things in very, uh, and if I love people that much, what will happen to me? And all of that is, are, are the, um, the layers that we, we put over ourselves to, to keep us away 
uh, from, from God, just like that. Because if we really knew, I mean, I was, I was thinking about this. Um, on Sunday, Helen told that really sweet story about her brother-in-law. I mean, I'll just summarize it, but um, her brother-in-law taking First Communion when he was seven years old and the children are supposed to fast from dinner time to the next morning when they take the communion. And there was a bowl of fruit right next to him and just without thinking, he just took a piece and ate the fruit and there were no adults around, and one of his little classmates said, well, now you can't take your First Communion, but he knew the whole family was in there. He had to. He couldn't just now drop out because after a whole year of preparation because he just ate a plum. So, but his real inner feeling was that God will forgive me. He knows I didn't mean to do it. I mean, what a sophisticated thing for a seven-year-old child to know, especially <laughs> in the context where guilt is often stronger than that. But I, I was really thinking about that because just that day I'd been thinking about certain... Um, I guess guilt is the only word. I, when my parents um, were in the last years of their life, I had to be very involved with them. And um, I didn't always... I wish I could go back and respond to my mother more um, with more consciousness of her reality. That's how I would put it. My sister has reassured me. In fact, she was stunned when I said to her that I had regrets about the way I had been with, with my mother. She just was completely, which was very reassuring to me. She thought I had been wonderful. But I, I know that I could, do, could have done it better and I would do it better. And it make, it, it, I think guilt is the only word for it, but it's uneasiness in my heart. I started thinking about eating the plum, the little boy eating the plum. Like, why, why do I persist? I mean, objectively, my sister tells me I have nothing to persist in. Objectively, it is true that I could have cognized, I could have recognized her individuality and the reality of her consciousness more than I did. I don't know why I didn't. I really don't. I, I, I don't know why I didn't, but I didn't. And there, I could have been much sweeter to her, and I would have liked to have been. But why do I still remember, and why does it still make me uneasy? Like, what am I, what am I waiting for? Why don't I just know that, that God himself knows that it's fine? So why do I think it isn't? And I'd have no answer to that. I'm just thinking about a seven-year-old child eating a plum and being certain that it was all right with God. So I think about a 60-year-old woman not being as patient with her mother as she could have been, but I meant well. Why isn't it just fine? I have no answer to it, but I'm trying to figure it out. Because I can feel, you see, a vibration of self-concern like that, regret or guilt. I don't... I mean, I don't have a lot of things I've tried to stay current, but I have, let me put it differently. In this incarnation, there are certain things that stick. I mean, to say I don't have a lot of those things is just naive. But there are certain things in this lifetime that I, but, but they're not, it's not legion. It's just a bunch of stuff. But uh, I can feel that in not being able to come to peace with those things, that is a vibration of consciousness, and that vibration of consciousness blocks the entry. I mean, in, as all, all those who received him, 
then why can't we receive him? Because we're not vibrating on the same wavelength. And all of those uh, regrets are vibrations that limit one's, one's capacity, my capacity, to accept and to merge into the spirit. And I don't know, I don't know what the answer to that is. But, it's, but we, can't, we can't just be indifferent to that. We have to, I mean, and the only thing we can do, and this is the only thing I do do, is I just, I try not to justify, I try not to make it worse. Just, you know, you just kind of keep inching your way forward. And Helen's story about the seven-year-old and the plum was, I was just like, that's magnificent. It was so simple and it was just so magnificent. Like, out of the mouths of babes. This is where the curator said, if you knew how much God loves you, you would die for joy. And of course, he knows that I wasn't as sweet to my mother as I would have liked to have been. And it has nothing to do with his acceptance and love for me. So why, what, what am I waiting for? That's the question I asked myself. What am I waiting for? Like what is possibly going to be enough to dissolve this? Yeah, worth asking. But you just, then what you do is, in surrender lies victory. That's what the subject was yesterday or, su or Sunday. Which is you just give up. You just completely give up. And when you really finally totally give up, I think that's when you become free. You just realize, of course. I mean, that's why the saints say things that sound so weird to the average person. All that, I'm nothing, I'm dust, you know, I'm just nothing in front of God, I'm just dust, I'm just dust, God is everything, I am nothing. And after a while, you want, the ego wants to assert itself, but I think it's an actual perception. Left to my own devices, look at what a mess I make. So the only hope here is to just give up, let go, let, let the divine work through us. But again, you see, those vibrations keep us from doing it. So I'm going in a circle, and I think I'll just stop. Pardon me? But, you know, long we feared to face your love, lest our emptiness it prove. Now at last our hearts we give you, who remain our friends. Even has that line in there. Yeah. You remember uh, from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, how uh, when he's describing samadhi, you can't possibly, there's, you just cannot, you cannot possibly understand what this state is with your rational mind is just it's absolutely impossible for you to understand it. you'll never know and and then everything else is ignorance yeah, so it seems <laughs> well, that's what he said, he said but it is all. true but it is true and I was reading this from Swami yesterday he was talking about super consciousness he was talking because he, he made up that whole course super conscious living in which he tried to teach us how to attune and to live as he put it not always to live in the state of super consciousness but to live according to the insights that superconsciousness gives us, which was a very interesting way to distinguish it. And he said, even in the yoga movement, people don't understand, and that was in the uh, 80s that he was saying this, when there was a lot of uh, guru scene around. I went once to a, I won't, I won't say the name, but it was, oh, we were in Southern California, and then some very well-known uh, teacher was giving a satsang, and just went, went to hear her, as it were, and uh, it was hundreds of people, and it was all very Indian. And um, 
the women were on one side and the men were on the other, and then you got in a line and you came up, and, and as you came up, she touched you with a peacock feather, you know, bing, 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 like this. Everybody gets touched with the peacock feather. So Ami commented that, uh, he said, people imagine Shaktipat, that the, the touch of the guru, he said that you'll just be walking along and then she'll, you know, somebody will touch you with a peacock feather and bing, you'll just be there. He said, like, it's like going across a barren desert and then falling into the oasis. It's all dry sand and then it's all green. He said, in fact, it's a, it's a gradual greening of the desert. You know, even as you sort of just stand there, it gradually turns green all around you. But, but step by step, by your own cooperation with it, there's a descent of grace, but it's also your own cooperation. So it's not an all or nothing. So even though I'm talking to you about these things that I've begun to understand, but I've begun to understand them on a very subtle level, whereas before, I didn't even know they were there. I just lived with them. <laughs> I didn't even know it was happening. But the gradual greening of the desert, um, you begin to see the contrast around you. And, and 30 years of saying, long we feared to face your love, it's begun finally to say, like, hey, maybe you should listen to this song instead of just singing it every week. That's why we do the same thing every week, because it takes us a while <laughs> to get there. And if we're bored with the same thing every week, it's, I don't think it's the fault of the ritual. It's just, it, it takes energy to keep finding new meaning. What I was going to say also from the book of Stories of Swami is the story, um, I don't remember if his name is on it or not, so I won't say his name, but he had a, 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 a near death, or he had a, the beginning of an... Uh, no, no, that wasn't the point. It was part of his story, but it doesn't matter. But he... Yes, it was when he was having the near-death experience and he he fell and bonged his head really badly and started leaving his body and was drawn into the presence of a, a powerful angelic being. And he described how it wasn't so much... It was, it was beautiful, his description. He said, it wasn't so much that I let go of my desires... He said, but in the presence of that being, it wasn't possible to have any other desire. And he said, it's just like as soon as they would arise, they would be vaporized by that vibration. But it was a very interesting way to put it. And that's, I think, how it all resolves itself in the end. It isn't like you force yourself. It's just as you aspire and as you reach for this you know, greater and greater clarity, in that clarity, the other just, it, the other is... Uh, neutralized because this vibration sucks that vibration into it. It just, the, the greater overcomes the lesser. So that's why it does feel like, what can I possibly do? But then when we finally stop, stop trying to hold on to our separateness and allow that energy in, then it all, as Master said, when ecstasy comes, everything goes. That's the good news, isn't it? <laughs> It's all about, you know, love and fear are the opposites. That's what the Bible says. Perfect love casts out fear. One of my very first, you know, like pre-spiritual path ideas, you know, my 18-year-old wisdom was the recognition that the one useless emotion in life was fear. You know how you are when you're 18 and you drink coffee and make pronouncements, so I made that pronouncement. And much later, I read first from Vivekananda, and then I realized it was in the Bible, perfect love casts out fear. And just contemplating that they are, in fact, opposites. 
because if you have that perfect love of God or if you have faith in God's perfect love then you're not afraid of anything because nothing can come to you except as an instrument of that love in the Rubaiyat there's a phrase which unfortunately I should, I should memorize it because it's so beautifully spoken but it's talking about death and it says you know the one who, lo who made us surely loves us and if he has, has ordained death as the inevitable end of the life he's given us certainly death too must be an expression of his love and imprisonment disease loss heartbreak you know how could it all not be an expression of his love but that you have to have but we fear all those things I mean people fear all those things but if you love God enough and have and therefore know his love there can't be fear and that's where I was just hearing Swami talk about as he just his horrible dentist stories my least favorite except for the coming cataclysmic times was his <clears throat> dentist story and this was you know the, the humdinger of all times where he broke the tooth in Italy and the guy wanted him to come back three or four times and he said no just do it all now and forget the Novocaine and he cut the nerve and he's holding the nerve in the air I mean just like oh, you can hardly bear to hear it and Swami just says, well, you know, it's been a good life, a little bit of pain for a short period of time, so what? And just says it with such equanimity, and then carried it through. You know, just, I mean, when I have my teeth cleaned, I, I wince, you know, and every time, every time, I'm sure all of us do, every time you have any dental work do, you have to go to the Swami doesn't take Novocaine part of the story. And just how am I going to deal with this? At least I do. And I'm sure that's why he said it to us so many times. Because we don't have that many opportunities, fortunately, most of us, to really confront that fundamental fear. But he wasn't afraid. I mean, I mean that was most, so much of it was that he's just simply not afraid. A little pain, though it hurts a lot for a while. So What? Well, I, that to me is like, how will I cope? What will I do? How will I feel? How long will it last? What will it be? Those are all, what are those? That's fear. But he, had, he was fearless because what could happen to me that's outside of God's will? These are wonderful. And, and they're, they're incredibly, I mean, and I, what I mean to say is they're surprisingly applicable in very tiny situations. You know, just... Because one feels that, that tiny either anxiety or rebellion sort of building in you and you start pushing against. I was pushing against the traffic on El Camino, you know, and I was pushing against escalating rents and pushing against well, what if the rent control measure doesn't pass and what if we buy the community at the peak of the market and then the mortgage goes underwater? I mean, I was just, like, I was running all those things. That was when I was thinking about fear. I thought, wait a minute, where does this come from? Go back. And solve all your problems at the highest level and it gets to be a habit. <laughs> okay. It was all about Oliver Rogers. Okay, what happens if we get into something really tough? <laughs> One fifty-six. On another occasion, the master said to Rogers, you have clear sailing. This is one of the most just heart-rending of these things. 
Several of those present wondered naturally, what about me, what about me? You can just feel it, can't you? I remember when Swami, I've told you, when Swami was passing out compliments and he didn't seem to know I was there. I just made my aura as big as the room and tried to, you know, just, by the way, have you noticed there's someone else in the room? <laughs> so he felt compelled. The master caught that thought. See, here the master caught the thought. He, he, realizes, he realizes that in complimenting one, suddenly he can feel, he's just so sensitive, he can feel all of them like, what about me? So he says, not wanting to leave them hanging, he added, and you will all have clear sailing if you keep on to the end. Two or three of them exulted afterward. Did you hear that? Master said we'd all have clear sailing. I decided not to remind them that he'd added that one little word, if. Their deliberate oversight of it, however, revealed a tendency I've often observed in disciples when recollecting the things he said and did to let their memory be colored by their desires. Oh dear. Creative listening, I call that. People do incredible creative listening a lot of the time. You just hear what you want to hear. I remember this man who was determined to start a business. Swamiji wanted to explain to them him that he was not good at business and it was not necessary spiritually for him ever to get good at business. So perhaps he should stick with something else and not go into business. And the man actually walked out of the room and told me that Swami, I'd been in the room, and told me, isn't it wonderful? Swami really thinks this is a good idea. I was just like, where did you ever, how did you ever? I didn't say anything because there was nothing to say. Years later when it, he went bankrupt, <laughs> I told him that Swami had not. He just, he refused to believe it. Because it's just... Desire is so... Uh, talk about a vibration that won't let other things in. It just won't let other things in. I know a woman friend of mine made a very disastrous marriage many, many years ago. I pleaded with her before she married that man not to do it. I knew it was going to be a disaster. Afterwards, she said, Why didn't you tell me? I said, Honey, I did. I told her exactly where and when we'd been. Absolutely not. It's like you just, it, it, the karma's different, you're just not going to hear it, your vibrations are going to go like that. It's very, you know, there was another, I had this experience with Swami once, I was just going to talk about sensitivity. Let's see, what was the whole deal? There was a, a group of people there for dinner. Swami was supposed to be part of some, of some uh, I know, some, uh, uh, one man was going to arrange for Swami to be part of some fairly high-level television shows. And it was either a done deal already or he was trying to make it happen. There was a little question about Swami's health, you know, what, was, what would happen if he couldn't do it. And, and then Swami was talk, started talking at the dinner table about that certain people were very good on television. And he actually said that I wasn't. That I wasn't. But Asha's, Asha's not good on television. I don't even know why he said it. I think... Uh, I don't know what his reasoning was. It had something to do with the look in my eye, as I recall. But he just said I wasn't good at being on television. And I was a little depleted from him saying that. You know, I was very vulnerable to criticism, and I felt a little depleted. So the next day, Swami called 
the man who was making the arrangement and me and a whole group of other people and he made a big point about the fact that he should go ahead and book all these programs because if Swami couldn't do it then I could do it <laughs> and the man who was booking the programs was totally just completely discombobulated because he couldn't put his reputation on the line that he was going to deliver Swami Kriyananda and then deliver me and I just kept saying to him, this has nothing to do with it. Believe me, I'm never going on those television shows. There's not a chance in the world. But Swami had felt, he'd felt it in me. And he, it wasn't, it was more important for him to buoy me up than for, for me to face whatever he was trying to tell me. I don't know whether I, I failed a test, you know, whether I was supposed to take it in the right way, and then I hadn't, and he had to fix it, whether he wasn't, thinking it through when he made his comments but it, it was a, it was an astonishing experience for me and Swami never said anything but I absolutely knew it was true there wasn't a doubt in my mind And the man, I, think, I don't know whether the man ever booked the television shows but it never came close Swami never called on me to do anything like that because I wasn't good at it <laughs> interesting but you know they, they can feel it just um, very easily. Okay. Yeah. One other thought about that reading. He was talking about the same guy who came to him in the last year or so of his life. Yeah, it's true. Last years. Well, he was 55. That no, looked no, old no, to Swami. Master's but, life. Oh, last year of Master's lives. Remember he yeah, said that's he came right. a year, he came a year after, after Swami. Swami. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> you have clear sailing. I, I, you know. No, that's true. That means that it's all whatever it was. It's all been worked through. I mean, I'm sure he was talking about beyond, whether this was his last lifetime or not, but beyond this incarnation. You know, the obstacles are gone. Certainly one reaches a point where one does have clear sailing, where there's just, I mean, all that I was describing before about just all those things that I still feel inside of me, there's a point at which it must resolve. And then karma just may still roll itself out, but you're just not, you're always free and worldly. Effortlessly liberating. It becomes, you work and you work, and then it becomes effortlessly liberating. Yeah. That reminds me of when, you know, I read somewhere that you can become liberated in your sleep, that you can become enlightened in your sleep. <laughs> I thought, well, I, I think I'll do it that way. Yeah, I'll just fall asleep tonight and wake up a master tomorrow. That's simple. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Number one five seven. The last th that last reflection naturally raises a question: How reliable are you, Walter? When you quote him, Walter means Kriyananda. Fortunately, my interest has always been in what he actually said, not in what I wanted him to say. Swami can just say that so calmly because he just simply knows that's a fact. He just really had a very impersonal interest. And he, he didn't, he, that's, he's not boasting. He's just stating a fact. I've been blessed in this life too. So this is like, there's two points here with a very clear memory. So one is that he has a clear memory. And two, he's only been interested in what actually happened. He hasn't been trying to use Master to um, advance his own agenda. I remember this is... Uh, this is not exactly related to that, but it's close. Um, when Self-Realization Sudananda, Self-Realization Fellowship Sudananda in 1990, 
a, a lot of people at Ananda had a lot of difficulty with that whole thing happening. And one of the reasons we did is because we had an enormous amount of respect for Diamata, who was the president of SRF, who had obviously been part of instigating that lawsuit. But the vast majority of us had never met Diamata, never had anything to do with her. And the reason we had such respect for her was because of the way Swami wrote about her in his autobiography, which he'd published in 1976. In the path, he describes her as such an ideal disciple that, and he, he often spoke, even though he also spoke frankly about some of the things that were going on in SRF from 1976 to 1990, he still consistently spoke highly of her. And most of us were, were profoundly influenced by that initial picture of her wonderful devotion and what a great disciple she was. So in 1990 and in the subsequent decade when we were really embroiled in a really ugly fight for our lives, unrelentingly attacked, and Diamata was quite in the middle of that and not behaving as Swami had described her in 1976, I said to Swamiji, even in 1976, you knew that this woman had many sides to her character. You had already experienced a great deal of what we experienced in the 90s. Yes, he said. But by writing about her the way you did, I said, you laid a trap for yourself because you taught us to have this great respect and reverence for her that caused people to doubt you later on. He said, yes. <laughs> he said, I knew that that was always the possibility. But he said, but what I wrote was also true. Just as simple as that. In another context, he was writing something and the, the, what exactly it was, I don't recall, but it, it was something to do in the context of the, of the litigation in which he was having to explain, you know, why he did things on the basis of what he understood that Master had wanted. And he was making a case for something that was fairly important. And then he threw in something else Master said that was completely contradictory and undermined his whole position. <laughs> and naturally, those of us who are reading the paper pointed that out. And he said, yes, but he also said it. And he said it has to also be considered. Because you can't, you can't do it. You can't try to win with anything but truth. Because in the end, the only thing that will win is truth, so why bother? Amazing. So, um, I've always, <clears throat> my interest has always been in what he actually said, not what I wanted him to say. And I've been blessed in this life too with a very clear memory. It serves me best when it comes to words and speech patterns. Perhaps that was why I aspired as a young man to be a playwright. It may also be why I've always had a certain facility for languages. In my mind, I can hear people speaking after hearing them speak a little. From that recollection, I'm able to phrase my own sentences. So I guess when he you know, would have to learn Italian or Balinese or whatever he was trying to learn, he could remember. I mean, that's the hardest thing I was... Uh, Anyway, I was trying to, there was this chubby little baby, I was with Kirtani and Anand, and there was this chubby little baby, 
and I thought maybe we can have an, another phrase. So they gave me the Italian word for small little fat one, <laughs> which I couldn't remember for five minutes. <laughs> but it sounded so much more charming in Italian than just to call him fatso in English. <laughs> I mean, he was three months old, so we weren't really hurting his feelings. <laughs> but Swamiji can hear people saying it. That's why he could pick up languages, because if somebody told him, you know, I have to go to the store and buy something in a language he didn't know, he could still hear those phrases, which is really quite something. Rod Brown, a friend of mine in college, told me after reading my autobiography, Rod Brown has been, had been his roommate, and he figures prominently in the path, not always in a positive way. And Rod said to him, I have only one objection to your book. You have total recall. <laughs> Meaning all of their college foibles he could re report with great accuracy. In 1950, the master decided to return to India, if possible. He planned to take me as well as several others along with him. One day at his desert retreat, I said to him, I believe I could learn Bengali easily. Very easily, he replied. Then pointing to his mouth, he said, Mook, to his nose, Na, Nat, to his eyes, a choke, to an ear, Khan, to his hand, Hat. Eight years later, when I finally got to go to India, I verified that this memory was accurate. Language he'd never heard, probably. I remember reading a note someone had scribbled in the margin of a letter that I had once written. I'd written the letter over 40 years earlier. Beside my quote of what that person had said to me, she had scribbled, not in those words. It was actually, it was Diamata. And he'd remembered what she'd said exactly, and she didn't want to have to face it. Not in those words. But yes, exactly in those words. <laughs> I'm quite certain, for even today, I can hear in my mind the very tone of her voice as she spoke them. Swamiji also, this is also in, I've said this in my book, I tell that story of him being with Padma and they were doing some business and there was a realtor involved and an hour later they needed to call the realtor and she was going to look up the phone number and he just recited it from memory. She said it was just on the top of the page and you just glanced at it. He said, no, I didn't glance at it. He said, I concentrated when I looked at it. So another aspect of, of this capacity of Swamiji's, which is that he was not inclined to go into subconsciousness. And many of us live our lives in a more or less subconscious way. And so even when people are talking to us or we're having experiences, a great deal of our, we're just nowhere. We're not really up and fully present. I mean, that was one of the, to my mind, enormous benefits of spending any time with Swami is you had to be awake and ready. There was just no way you could just kind of drift off and not be listening. You had to be always listening. And not everybody enjoys that. Many people really much prefer, in fact, that's the great battle of life, is the battle between subconscious and superconscious. We're always just trying to comfort ourselves by dulling ourselves out. But Swami just never did. It was not in his nature from birth. He was always 100% concentrated. So that's one of the reasons that he can still hear her saying it. Well, his, his interactions with her were important, the comment that she made at that time, I can't remember exactly right now what it was, but it was something of great significance to him. And so, of course, he remembered it. It mattered. He just, he couldn't lose it. It may be that the Master gave me a special blessing in this respect. 
for though he told me to write down his words, I knew no shorthand. Yet even years later, I found that I could recall clearly word for word what he'd said and just how he'd said it. Nothing I've ever experienced has caused me to question this ability. That's a good point. Nothing I've ever experienced. You know, his, his recollections of Master proved consistent. And they proved to be also... Um, they, they guide him in the right directions. That, that's more what he means. It's not like he suddenly wakes up and realizes, oh, that's not what happened at all, and what I remember isn't really... You know, he, doesn't, he hasn't gradually become aware of his own shortcomings and recognize the mistakes he's made. Just the opposite. The older he gets, the more the clarity of his recollections is confirmed by his more mature experiences. So he's also talking about that. I say these things not to boast, but only to reassure the re reader that what I recorded in these notebooks, in those notebooks, was accurate. That's also very important, especially, um, I have mentioned, you know, the fact that other people have interpreted Master differently, but Ananda's based on the clarity of Swamiji's connection to Master, and he's, he's given us a whole way of life based on his understanding of what Master intended. So it's important for us to at least have his word on the subject. I mean, it's a, it's a question we should ask. It's also so like Swamiji to anticipate the question. It's like now we're talking about uh, creative listening, and, you know, is that what I'm doing? Am I just molding things? And so he's answering us in the only way he can. In his way, again, he gives us objective examples. He gave me these Bengali words, and eight years later I knew it, and he gives us a couple of others here. This woman challenged me, but I could still hear her. Instead of just saying, no, I'm not, he, he always would say to us, don't just give people conclusions, give them stories, give them experiences, give them ways so that they have at least some evidence to evaluate it other than just your opinion, instead of just saying you should be loyal to me and believe me. Probably it was also owing to the Master's extraordinary magnetism that his words especially lingered clearly in my mind. Of course that's true, and Swami's complete attention to it. Whatever he uttered penetrated deeply and remains with me to this day. What a blessing. Once at a gathering of the monks and nuns, he sang a song in Bengali, Mukti Dete Pare, I can't pronounce it correctly. Can, anyway, he says it there. Bengali, Mukti Dete Pare, Mukti Dete Pare, Bhakti Dete Pare, Koi. As I mentioned earlier, I knew no Bengali at that time, yet the words remained with me. Next, he sang the song in English. It was a song to the devotee, as if sung by the Divine Mother. O oh, devotee, I can give you salvation, but not my love and devotion. Ask of me salvation, but not my love and devotion. For in thee then, when I give those away, I become poor, walking on your heart's way. Such was the Master's magnetism that not only his words, but the melody as well have remained with me ever since, though he sang it once only. Years later, I learned Bengali and found that I'd remembered also the Bengali words accurately. Both versions, Bengali and English, and also the melody, remain with me to the present day. You know, Swamiji is also talking a little bit about his own state of superconsciousness. 
because part of what he's talking about is the ability to go back into a moment and be in that moment. And that's one of the things that he described about his childhood experiences of superconsciousness and his subsequent ones. I mean, Master singing that song, I'm sure, put Swamiji into a superconscious state, or I would, I, I can imagine that it would. For so many reasons, Swami's past lives in India, his own musical nature, the magnitude of Master singing that song, which he only sang once, Swami said. And so time is, becomes not a factor. And when he wants to reconnect with that, he just goes back into it. And as Swami said about that experience, no time has passed. You know, the intensity of things is diminished by time, but if you can uh, dissolve the illusion of time, then nothing, no diminishment happens. Wow, let's take a break. Let's take a little time. <laughs> I was saying that thought of, of retrieving something in a superconscious state and no time has passed, I hadn't really thought about that in terms of Swami's remarkable recollections of his time with Master. But another thing that I had thought of was um, that Patanjali, perfect non-attachment allows you to remember your past lives. So um, the less attached you are moment to moment, the more the whole um, span of time is accessible to you. So that, that's, that's where it isn't just barren desert and then a green oasis. It's, it's, it's a process. So the more detached you are, the more clearly and accurately, you know, you, I mean, you can remember. I, memory is not just not having a good memory is not just a spiritual quality so it's not like if you don't have a really good memory that means that you're not advancing spiritually there's a whole other but but it's just an interesting I was thinking about Patanjali in this context you just remember things because you have no obstacles to remembering them the other side that I've seen is there's a, a certain uh, you know you don't remember anything because why do you care it's like it makes no impression on you, so you just don't have any particular memory of anything because it just goes by. You're only thinking, Ram, 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 what does it matter? I was looking at uh, uh, In Quest of God again recently, which is by uh, Papa Ramdas, is what they call him, as distinct from the Richard Alpert. Uh, Papa Ramdas was a very, very elevated sadhu, uh, saint in India. He came to visit America, and Swami talks about him somewhere because he, SRF hosted him. And uh, let's see now, what, why did I bring that up? Oh, but in Quest of God is his story of just wandering away from his home, uh, chanting the Ram, Ram Mantra. And then he just describes all these experiences that happened to them, and he describes what they looked like to him. But... Um, when you actually think about what he's describing, you know, being left out in the cold, not having any food, being thrown off the train, uh, being, you know, uh, pummeled with stones or, you know, whatever it might be. But he never really describes it like that. He just talks from his perspective of just being with Lord Ram and chanting the mantra and having all these one wonderful thing after another happening to him because that's just the way he moves through life. That's how he sees it. And I've noticed that Swami's memory was entirely positive, even though he could objectify things if he needed to, but he, he just didn't allow things to impress him in a negative way. 
he, 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 we could see the facts. That was the story of going out to dinner with that couple that were so at odds with each other. And when they finally um, you know, separated for the evening and Swami's companion said to him, oh, the negativity between them was so terrible. And Swami said, was it? Like, was it? But then he re realized that he'd spent the entire evening trying to create a harmonious understanding between them or, or, or trying to help them see things in a more positive light. But he'd never defined it in his mind as negative. He just responded as he felt appropriate to what was happening so that when he walked away, he didn't say, oh, that was a terrible experience. And that was what Ramdas was doing. Everything that happened to him was just Ramlila. It was just God playing with him. And so what the objective, how you would objectively define it, it wasn't, that wasn't the experience he was having. I mean, that's a very, very interesting thought. This goes back to the beginning of these uh, dissonant vibrations that I was talking about that linger in the heart because we define our experiences in ways that create dissonance within us and separate us from God. And then even after they're over, we have made up that story and we get to keep living in it. So here I am where my sister assures me that I was wonderful with my mother. <clears throat> but I can tell how I could have done better. And so I'm busy living in the story of what I didn't do. And the whole thing is, is 10 years over. So, I mean, like, well, what is the reality here? How, how, how we recreate these things? And then the seven-year-old boy eats the plum. And he knows that it doesn't matter because God loves him. There's a lot, lots of fun we can have. Okay. <clears throat> Number 158. The song I've just quoted was so heart-meltingly sweet. It brought tears of longing to my eyes. Ah, one thought for Divine Mother's love. Obviously, what the words meant was, don't seek me merely for salvation. Seek me for my love. It is easy to see that many women especially encountering such tenderness and sweetness in the Master's nature must have looked upon him with motherly eyes. Yet his nature was at the same time extraordinarily powerful. You know, in Durgamata's recollections of Master's um, after his samadhi when they go um, to see him after his pass after his Maha Samadhi and she, she calls him little master and she talks about his pudgy little hands and his pudgy little feet and you know there's a part of you that, that it, because Swami never talked about him like that but Swamiji said that the women especially who'd been with him a very long time and I remember once Swami said to me he said I never really put this in the path because I just didn't know where to put it but Master was so adorable. <laughs> That's how he said it. He was just adorable. Because he just was. And so that's what he's referring to here. He only gives it a sentence or two, and you don't necessarily quite get it, where he says they looked on him with motherly eyes. He was just so lovable and so sweet and so childlike in his nature that they, they were enthralled with his company but there was also that part of it. Little Master, they used to call him, actually, because he was, he was short, and his, his, his hands and feet were not large. But still, Swamiji could never do that. Partly, of course, Master was different with him, and Swami came at the end of his life. 
but it was also a certain a certain bhav that, that he, he himself may not have discouraged because it may have been the right bhav for them you know, this sort of intimate um, taking care of him kind of energy anyway yet his nature was at the same time extraordinarily powerful for men it was often quite different they felt challenged even intimidated by the power he emanated their masculine nature found it difficult to accept and adapt to such strength in another human being for men perhaps especially in America where independence of spirit commands respect and admiration few men perhaps especially in America found it easy to be his followers we, I watch that in Ananda village a lot too women found it easier to just cooperate with Swami a lot of the men they just, it, they, they just got competitive they, they just couldn't just allow him to um, set the tone they, they fought with it and that's why more women are on the path than men as are just en masse this probably was the reason he also attracted enemies though their enmity in every case was self-generated he himself sincerely loved everyone um, of course the truth is his strength challenged them to become real men not proud and aggressive but noble, fair-minded, generous, whether in victory or defeat, and above all, strong in themselves. I remember always oh, the story where Swami tells where he, uh, he's, the word, he, the, the, uh, he mentioned to Master that he had some ideas for developing the garden, remember? And Master rather dismissively said, ask Ananda Mata, she knows my wishes for the garden. And Swamiji himself, he's, he was honest enough, he writes this in his autobiography, he just chafed under that. He said, can't I have my own opinions? Can't I do anything around here the way I want to do it? And you know, a, a woman wouldn't necessarily feel that. A woman, I mean, women and men are not all that different, but the feminine side is often quite happy to have the man in charge, have the masculine energy lead. Nowadays, the male and female, the people incarnate, souls incarnating in male and female, it's a little more scrambled, but nonetheless. But a lot of women, especially in partnership with a very strong man, are quite happy to have that energy, and especially the disciples, the female disciples of the Master would just be delighted to have him guiding, and then they could just supportively cooperate with what it was that he wanted. They would actually feel very secure in that position. But for Swami, a piece of him, but you know, I have my own ideas, I have my own ways of doing things, especially in America, where men are trained this way. So it was a challenge. One thinks in this respect of Jesus Christ, whom the Pharisees opposed from the beginning, because even without speaking, he emanated so much spiritual power. It was a power incalculably greater than their own. Now there are the Pharisees that are the corrupt priesthood and they have a pretty good deal going for themselves. And this man comes in and tells them that their day is over. I mean, they're not going to be very enthusiastic about that. But in a real sense, that's what happens to all of us in the presence of the Guru. The Guru is announcing to our comfortable little egoic self that that day is over. And there's a, a strong inclination that rises up within us to defend ourselves against that that's the same thing we've been we're talking about earlier about 
It's just like what I have my own ways and what would happen to me if I just give in to this and I don't want to just be a follower. I have to have my own creative will. And there's, there's some conversation, I think we've already been through it, where, or maybe it's coming, where one of the disciples says to Swami something like, but I have my own will too. And Master responds, you know, your will is guided by whims and fancies. That's what Sri Yukteswar said. By whims and fancies until it's anchored in divine will. But we're attached to that and don't know it. It's, it's just, it's mind-boggling how much we work against our own interests and don't realize. But you see, look how powerful Swami became when he surrendered completely to Master's will. I mean, look at the um, enormous accomplishment and creativity, but he always did it as a disciple. And he was always trying to explain to us, you know, if you act as a disciple with the desire to serve, all of that self that you're trying so hard to express will actually finally be able to express. And that was when he would use the words, he said, what most people call creativity is actually just imitative because they're not in their own point of origin. They're not original. I, I know he, that would happen with those who were writing music at Ananda at that time. He said they're just imitating the popular songs around them. And he encouraged, not successfully in any case, if you would just really immerse yourself first in my music, and he would try to get them to understand, you, then you will be able to write original music because you'll get in tune with a deeper part of yourself. But rebelling against that, um, thinking that this is actually your own self, you're not, you're not in touch with yourself yet. But that's a hard pill to swallow. So, the image many people have of the Master one that has been projected perhaps by an overbalance of the number of women disciples is of someone so sweet as to be almost cuddly. <laughs> we don't really hear that. We, what we actually hear more is, well, sometimes you do. You actually hear more about, well, I smile when I think of his other side. He was lovable, certainly, utterly so. Yet he was also the very personification of power. Um, Swami also, also often talked about how, how the women just missed the whole part of him that had really come here with a world mission because they were so captured by the charm of that personality that they, they just couldn't get their minds around this other dimension. And again, you have to understand, it wasn't necessarily their job to do so. And that was why later on there was so much confusion because it was Swami's job to do so. And so all of that perspective that Master poured into Swami, he didn't pour into many of those women leaders because as Swami says about Diamanta, she was he said she was really very simple in her nature. She was just a very simple bhakti. So Master didn't load her down with a whole lot of philosophy and a whole lot of vision because it just wasn't her job to have it. It was Swami's job to have it. But then they weren't able to understand that because his understanding was so different that perhaps it was two sides of the same coin. And that's again where Swami says he only ever wanted to know what Master actually said. He wasn't ever trying to make Master do what he wanted. Which is quite different. Now we have a little bit about William the Conqueror here which we'll just start. We won't be able to finish. 
the number one five nine. The subject of that power deserves a, the subject of that power deserves a commentary its own, of its own, for he told us that in a former incarnation he had been William the Conqueror. What an irony for me personally! I had been raised until the age of thirteen within the English school system, where little good was said about William. Indeed, I considered him one of the great villains of history, and here suddenly. To my self-admitted dismay, I found that this villain was my own guru. <laughs> Can you imagine? Swamiji was so new on the path, he was so young, he, and he says himself that Master was constantly blowing his mind, that he just was, was overwhelmed by this total change in his life, and just... You know, he, just to make matters worse, I can, I can just hear Swami laughing delightedly about how much worse could it get. You know, here is my whole schooling now has been undermined by Master declaring the most unlikely incarnation, because who would think of a Master like that as being such a world-conquering warrior? I mean, we've grown accustomed to it. I've grown accustomed to it, of course, because we've had this in front of us for many years. But still, it even just in itself, it just dismantles so much of our um, preconceptions, and that's what Swami's working with here, our preconceptions of what a master is supposed to be like, blessed Jesus, meek and mild. Um, it's not true, because also it gives us an idea of what we have to rise to. These are all, again, all these self-protective little systems that we build up, that this is all I'm going to take and no more, that I'm going to bring the spiritual path down to where I'm standing so that I can feel satisfied that I'm walking it when it's just not a possibility. Naturally, on first receiving this news, I made it a point to read up on William's life. From that reading, I learned that what people had found villainous about him was, above all, apart from the obvious fact that he um, frustrated many other people's selfish ambitions was his aura of enormous power. Baron after baron pitted himself futilely against him. Even while William was a boy, he had to fight for his birthright. Later in life, his own oldest son, Robert, nicknamed Curtos, fought against him, motivated by fierce envy. What an incarnation. That's why Master lamented that Lahiri was so fortunate because there were no wars during his incarnation where Master had to live through three. At least this time he didn't have to fight them himself. But still, what a life. Imagine being a Master and being said, well, you're going to go down into a pretty awful time and pick up your sword. I mean, how completely impersonal they are. And, you, and we find ourselves in living in Silicon Valley on property we can't afford with rents that are bankrupting us and all of these different things happening and I mean this is our battle why didn't we choose an easier time I mean at least we're not galloping along in armor with swords in our hands could have been worse William had an important role to play in history his vigor was not due as historians generally suppose to personal ambition he acted in obedience to God's command inwardly. You know, it's important for us to bear in mind, especially at the <clears throat> present uh, crossroads that our country is in, to what an extent God is, has the whole plan underway. William had an important role to play in history, and Swami goes on to talk about the role of England. You know, that it's not 
America is, a, is the country of Dwapara Yuga, and it's the country in which self-realization was first planted. It's the place in which Ananda began and Master began. It's no accident that these things happen, and when our country finds itself on such a peculiar path like we're on right now, again, that fear comes in, you see. But if God has it in hand, which he must, I mean, when all that happened in William's life, when you know, when he came from Normandy and he went into England and he, all of the things that had to happen, which he, they, don't, they didn't look anything like coming and teaching Kriya Yoga in Los Angeles. They just didn't look anything like it. But it was an avatar's incarnation. And it was no less obedient to the will of God inside him uh, than when he came to this country as Yogananda. His was a hard life. So also were the times he lived in. He had no alternative but to respond appropriately to the countless challenges he faced. Had he been more acquiescing, he would have failed in his task. It must be remembered that God sends not only nourishing rain upon the earth, but also lightning, drought, and raging floods. Ah, we're so in favor of the nourishing rain. William was, a di William was a divine instrument in an important destiny. He forged into a single nation a patchwork of loosely knit warring fiefdoms. England, too, had a divine destiny to unite East and West and thereby gradually to help mankind in its struggle to enter a new and higher age, Dwapara Yuga. When I was traveling once somewhere else in the world, <clears throat> wherever I might have been, I, I just was conscious of, I mean, now the, uh, the British Empire has been vilified to a very large extent, but when you stand back and you start with William essentially creating that country and then the powerful destiny of that country to do exactly what it did, which was to go all over the world, especially, you know, to the Oriental side, just infiltrate that whole world, especially India, and make English the, the language of the world. I mean, nowadays, English is the world language. And I don't know languages. I've heard Swami speak of a lot of good reasons why English is a very good choice, among other things, because how intuitive you can be in English because of the way the grammar works. I can't say it exactly, but you don't have to know when you start where you're going to finish. You don't have to choose gender and such like that. He said in other languages you have to decide at the beginning where you're going. He said in English it can just unfold as you go along. Since I only speak English, I don't, I don't know how that is. And how many words there are in English, how egalitarian English is about just absorbing everybody else's words and because I only speak English and I've traveled a lot, I really appreciate how much English is the world's language. And because I've been traveling for decades, I've, it's been long enough now that I've really seen it, how easily you can go anywhere. And it's not, that's not chauvinism. The fact is, in higher ages, everybody speaks the same language. All of this business of separate languages and cultures, that's part of Kali Yuga. And now that we're going into a higher age, all of those forces need to come together into some kind of unity. And England was really the instrument of that. And now America. When I was sitting in some, I think, Central America country where I went on a holiday, and I was observing how much of tawdry Americanism had invaded the country, 
it occurred to me that right now the worst, the lowest common denominator is being exported around the world. But what's happening is, however, that the world is unifying. And as the consciousness of, I mean, what's happening at this time is that the, um, the uh, channels of that global dissemination are being formed techn technologically and culturally. And right now what's passing through a lot of those channels is garbage. But the channels are there. And when consciousness elevates, it's all in place. And if England hadn't been England, would it have ever have happened? And England wouldn't have been England without William. And America, of course, wouldn't have been America without England because that's where we all came from. That's where the, this culture came from, bringing this language. It's all just um, a great antidote to fear because you really see it very differently. <clears throat> William, William was, in fact, a deeply spiritual man. It is said of him that he never for a day, never for a day, missed receiving the Eucharist. And he was on the battlefield and all sorts of things happened. He went to Mass every day. He built and strengthened monasteries. His closest friends were saintly men, Archbishop Lanfranc, who in the present life, Yogananda told us, was his guru, Sri Yukteswar, and also Anselm. In an age notorious for its promiscuity, it is said of William that he was completely faithful to his wife. Very interesting. Later on, he says, Napoleon says, history is a lie agreed upon. <laughs> the purpose of this book, obviously, is not to analyze the life of William the Conqueror. I mention it here to underscore an important aspect of Yogananda's character, his extraordinary power. This was evident to all who knew him personally. It was an aspect of his nature that many people have overlooked or else have known little about. Again, as I said, that widespread lack of awareness may be due to the fact that apart from Dr. Lewis, hardly any man seems ever to have spoken or written much about the Master, even Dr. Lewis, though a deeply devoted disciple, saw his guru only in terms of his own personal love for him. He never showed a deep understanding of the universality of the Master's mission, nor of the universal love he bore everyone. Sananda Lal Ghosh, a brother of the Master, years later wrote a book about the Master's early life, which he called Mejda. But Sananda wasn't a disciple, and he never did anything actually to serve the Master's mission. <coughs> His book is completely personal, although, um, though, but also fascinating. The song that we sing, The Master's Love for Me, that was, those words are by Dr. Lewis. I was, when I read that, I thought about it. And Dr. Lewis and Master met when they were both like in their 20s. And, and Swami also describes Master at that time was emphasizing his, his unity with people rather than his difference. And he and Dr. Lewis just grew up as pals. He was a family friend. He came and stayed at their house all the time. They traveled together. But again, it was the, Dr. Lewis's nature. As Swami said, he was a dentist from a small town in Massachusetts, and he just didn't have... I mean, Swamiji was raised in Europe, speaking four languages by the time he was 10. You know, he didn't even really have a nationality, Swamiji. But, but uh, Dr. Lewis was a Boston dentist. That's where he came from. And so how, how do you go from that you know, to, 
changing the whole world. It's just a wholly different way. So uh, Master cultivated Dr. Lewis according to Dr. Lewis's own personality. And he writes that beautiful song, The Master's Love for Me. But he says he, dis- he didn't understand the mission either. He, and, and in many occasions, although Swami doesn't emphasize it, Dr. Lewis <clears throat> took directions that were not exactly the ones Master would have taken because he just didn't have the imagination to see it. He, he wasn't constituted that way. Um, and then, he, then when he said here about Sananda never did anything actually to serve the Master's mission, I, I don't think he was saying that so much to... I mean, he wasn't meaning that as a, a, a complaint. But that meant also Sananda never stepped into the reality that was Master. And part of the way you can understand is when you step into that reality. I certainly know that many things that Swami said and asserted over the years, I didn't understand until I was more walking along the same path with responsibilities and with people. I would hear him say things and I wouldn't not believe them, but I had no way of understanding them until I found myself in the same position. So in the same way with Dr. Lewis and Sananda, they never really did that much to try to emulate or to carry forward what Master was doing, and that also limited their ability to understand it, which is also true for many of the women whose lives were spent in close proximity to him or then, you know, polishing his shoes and dusting his room after he left. So it still just all stays like that, and you, you never are drawn into that same reality, and so you, you don't really understand after that. That's why he mentioned that about Sananda, I think, is that he just, he, he was, it's a fascinating and a very sweet book, but it's still, it's only what Sananda could see because of who he was also. Well, I think that took us through tonight. So we went, uh, we went up to, not quite to the end of 159. Pardon me? One more paragraph. I know. When many people have commented, in fact, how surprised Mo surprised, not to say shocked they were, when they first heard the Master's voice on a recording. Resounding clearly in that voice is no bob a gentle lamb, but the mighty roar of a spiritual warrior. Okay, <laughs> very good. So we finished 159, so we went from 155 to 159. <laughs> very enjoyable. May I borrow a pen from someone?